the challenge. Show me God. I can only believe what can be proven empirically or scientifically. A question you often hear is, if God made the universe, then who made God? What are other common mistakes Christians make when arguing for the existence of God? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and an international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics the defense of the Christian faith. Let's tune in now as Dr. Doug Potter explains the five errors Christians make when arguing for the existence of God. Now with part two is Doug. That's why the Bible is absolutely essential to give us that message and to take that uh, into the world. So both are needed. Both are important to Christian apologetics. And, and I would readily admit that you may meet some people that do not need arguments for the existence of God. In fact, I, I tell my students, I would only give arguments to the existence of God to someone who questioned whether or not God existed, someone who was an atheist that believed there wasn't a God, or someone who was an agnostic that said, oh, we can't know whether God exists. I would say it's those people that need arguments for the existence of God, and those are the people we need to do apologetics for. If I meet someone who, in general terms, is just a theist, doesn't have a problem with the existence of God, then I'm going to go right for, well, do you know the gospel? Do you know Jesus Christ? And go right for that with respect to my apologetic. And, and find out where they are in terms of a relationship uh, with God because through Jesus Christ, because there is no problem with respect to their believing God exists. Great point there. Well, Doug, error number three, arguments for the existence of God depend on the ontological argument, so they are invalid. Well, explain to us first, what is the ontological argument? What do we mean yeah, by that? You'll, you'll notice that when I gave you three arguments at the beginning when we started talking, the cosmological, the moral, and the teleological argument, one of the arguments I didn't give you was the ontological argument for the existence of God. And I know that's a big word, and I'll, I'll give you uh, kind of it simply stated. In fact, uh, one of the very well-known uh, philosophers who objected to arguments for the existence of God objected to it on the basis of the fact that all these arguments that I gave uh, to you, the cosmological, moral, and teleological argument, he says they all are just kind of different versions of the ontological argument. So we've got to answer what is the ontological argument. The ontological argument basically says that God is the maximum being that can be conceived in our mind. And since he's the maximum being that can be conceived in our mind, we must attribute to him the maximum things that there are to attribute to him. And one of those things that we would want to attribute to the maximum being is necessary existence. And therefore, attributing necessary existence to the maximum being that we concede entails, therefore, that God exists. And one of the problems that philosophers have pointed out with this argument for the existence of God is, uh, let me give the illustration. If I can think of $100 in my mind, whatever I would describe with respect to $100, I'm still thinking about it in my mind. It doesn't entail that I actually have, and I wish I had, believe me, I wish I had $100 in my pocket. 
but I don't have $100 in my pocket. I, I, I'm telling you the truth. If I pulled out my pockets, you wouldn't find any money right now in my pockets. I don't have $100. And so I can sit here all day and think about $100, and it's not going to produce 100 real dollars in my pocket. Well, the same thing is thrown back on the philosopher. You can think about God all day long if you want. It doesn't entail that God actually exists. And so one of the objections is raised is these previous arguments that I gave all reduce, that is the cosmological, the moral, and teleological, all reduce to this ontological argument. And my, my retort to that, my response to that is, no, that's not the case. In fact, if we, we could spend a lot of time examining these three arguments that I gave you, and I would go to strains to point out that nowhere in the premises or in the conclusion, or even anything inferentially, is it dependent on an ontological argument. What sometimes people mistake for an ontological argument is really an ontological definition of God, meaning if God exists, then we have to conceive of him as being a necessary being. Well, that's not the ontological argument that I gave you. That's an ontological definition that says, if God exists, I have to give you other grounds that God does exist, such as the cosmological argument or the moral argument, but the ontological argument I'm not giving you. But once we give a cosmological or a moral or a design argument, then we can talk about the nature of God ontologically and say, well, God must exist because he's necessary existence. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's all these things that we've already talked about. But nowhere are arguments dependent upon the ontological argument. So they are valid. They're not invalid because nowhere are they dependent on the ontological argument, and nowhere do they rely on it for any of their premises or conclusion. Yes, Doug, and that objection was given to us by one of the most important philosophers of modern philosophy, Immanuel Kant. Tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, uh, you have to hold me back here because I could talk to no. I actually did. You may not really know this, but I actually did my thesis on Immanuel Kant here at Southern oh. Evangelical Seminary. Yeah, most of us uh, can't understand him. That's right. You're, yeah, you're that's exactly. That's exactly right. So hold me back. I don't want to talk uh, too much uh, about him, but let me let me just kind of give you some of of the basics uh, to Kant without going into too much. He, he's a German philosopher, and he lived about 1724 uh, to 1804, and he espoused uh, today what is popularly known as agnosticism. I wouldn't put him in the camp of an atheist. Um, I, I would not put him in the camp that says there is no God. I would put him in the camp that says we can't know by argumentation whether or not there is a God, and that is technically philosophically known as agnosticism. And I think most philosophers would, today would, would say that Immanuel Kant is the, the father of agnosticism. And as I, as I mentioned before, uh, he objected to the classical arguments for the existence of God. I think that fundamentally Immanuel Kant's philosophy is flawed. And you know, it may sound like a tongue twister, uh, but ultimately, you know, Immanuel Kant, in doing his philosophy, uh, took away from the common person uh, something that is just evident to everybody that is in the world today, and that is that we know the world. Kant actually drew a divide or drew a, a chasm, or some would call it Kant's gulf, a division between our knowing mind and a knowing world. 
And once he did that, then he cut off access to demonstrating the existence of God, of using the world that everyone knows that we know. He divided himself from that and then just was left with his mind and reasoning and his mind alone. And of course, if you're left with just reasoning your mind alone, then you'll never get to the world that we and reason about things in the world. And if you can't reason about things in the world, then you can't reason to the existence of God, because the cosmological argument is based on reasoning about things in the world that they're finite, they're limited, and they change, and therefore there must be something that's infinite and eternal and doesn't change. And it's Immanuel Kant that really cut that divide in philosophy. And, and, and believe it or not, modern philosophy is still suffering today with what I call a Kantian hangover. Uh, they may find flaws in Kant, but they still operate in philosophy as if what Kant said is true, and we don't have access to the real knowable world, which is just ridiculous. Yes, you know, Kant said you can't truly know the world around you, but that's, I believe, a self-defeating statement because you need to actually know something about the world to make that statement. Is that kind of a good summary? You're exactly right. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. That is the fundamental flaw of Immanuel Kant. In fact, a lot of people uh, say, how can you come up with such a, a simple thing of stating, you know, the problem with Kant is that he's self-defeating. Kant is basically saying, I know enough about the world to know that you can't know the world. Well, if Immanuel Kant can know enough about the world to know that I can't know the world, why can't I at least know what he knows about the world? That's why it's ultimately just a self-defeating, as you stated, just a self-defeating philosophy uh, and approach. If you're going to draw a line in the sand and say, don't go beyond this line, someone has to know what's beyond that line to know where to draw the line. And of course, it's Kant sitting there saying, I'm drawing the line and you can't know beyond this. But of course, he has to know beyond that to say that the rest of us can't know beyond. That's the kind of thing that is self-defeating about his entire philosophical system. Yeah, and I hope people appreciate the significant study you just stated here, because Kant has very significant impact on modern philosophy or what many may call postmodern philosophy, the whole idea you can't know reality. And often when we're talking to college students today, that's often the first thing they throw out. You can't know reality. So don't use these arguments against us. You can't know reality. So it's a very significant uh, study you just took us through there, Doug. Yeah, you're right. And you know, the very simple way uh, to respond to that is to show that if someone says you can't know reality or we don't know reality, well, how do they know that statement? Is that statement about reality or is that statement not about reality? Is that statement true or is that statement not true? Even the postmodernist wants to say postmodernism is true as opposed to being false. Why hold something that's false? They don't hold it because it's false. They hold it because it's true. Well, if it's true, is it true absolutely or is it true relatively? If it's true relatively, then just reject it. Why should anyone hold postmodern? If it's true absolutely, then, of course, then there is absolute truth. And then we do know reality uh, and we do know things about the world. And if we can know things about the world, then certainly we can reason about these things to the conclusion that God exists. Very great point there. Well, Error number four, Doug, arguments for the existence of God depend on empiricism or knowing the world, so they are invalid. Explain to us what that means, depends on sure. empiricism. 
Right. I'll probably have to give uh, some background to this, which is, is good. Empiricism is basically the view that says we know the world directly. We know things in the world. We know things via our senses and our intellect can put the data that it gets from its senses and actually abstract what I will call abstract reality itself from the world. And so we do know the thing in itself. One of the things that Kant says is we don't know the world as it is in itself. And I would object, we do know the world. We don't know a copy of the world. We don't know an image of the world, but we know natures or things in the world themselves. But of course, uh, if Khan is right and we don't know the thing in itself, then we don't know the world as it is in itself, and therefore we can't reason about things in the real world, the world as it is in itself, and conclude that God exists. So really Kant's uh, kind of behind this one as well. And so all it comes down to, and of course modern philosophy has attached onto this, and, and they've actually struggled in modern philosophy. You look at the history of modern philosophy from uh, Descartes and Kant in the 17 and 1800s, even into the 1960s and 1970s, the whole whole mentality of philosophy was, give me an argument that we know the external knowable world, and then I'll listen to you about reasoning about the external knowable world. And I would just retort that premise right there of them calling me or, or requiring that I give an argument that we know the external knowable world assumes that there's this Kantian gap or gulf that exists between my knowing mind and the world itself, well, I'm not going to assume Kant's gap. I'm going to make the assertion that we know the world, and I can be descriptive of how we know the world, but there's some things that we have to recognize that philosophy just cannot do. And one of the things that philosophy just cannot do, or I should say this, do better than reality itself, is to demonstrate and make it evident to us that we know a real world or we know reality. Philosophy can't give us an argument that we know reality. In fact, I, I usually go back to my philosophy professor, uh, Dr. Richard Howe, who actually teaches here at Southern Evangelical Seminary. I took his metaphysics class, and I'll tell you, the light uh, clicked on this particular point that I'm talking about. It clicked on me when he was uh, giving a lecture, and he basically said, look, if we come up across a brick wall, if that and the modern philosopher says, okay, give me an argument that the brick wall exists. Well, he commented, Dr. Richard Howell commented and said, look, if the brick wall cannot convince you that it exists, that it's real, what makes anyone think that a philosophical argument about the existence of the brick wall is going to do any better? Again, this just shows the limitations of philosophy. Philosophy is asking something that's unreasonable. It's asking itself, its subject of study, to do something that it's not able to do, at least not any better than reality itself. And, of course, the common person that walks down the street says, you know, of course I know there's a brick wall there. You know, if I run into it, it's going to hurt. I don't need anything more than the brick wall to convince me that the brick wall is real. And I'll tell you, the philosopher needs to hold on to that what that common person is saying. 
they don't need anything else to do their philosophy than reality itself, and their philosophy should be based on reality that is just evident to us. And this is, this is the fundamental flaw of modern philosophy today, is they are unable to use in philosophy what the common person uses every day when they come across things in reality or things in our world. Yes, because they have the premise that you cannot know reality from our friend Immanuel Kant there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, error number five, and this is the final one here, Doug. Arguments for the existence of God depend on the principle of causation, so they are invalid. What do you mean by that? Yeah, we'll probably have to talk about the principle of causation, and I'll tell you, this one you can pick up from our friend Immanuel Kant, but even before him there was actually a philosopher by the name of David Hume who was actually quite influential. Uh, David Hume is a skeptic, and David Hume was influential not only Immanuel Kant, he's, he's influential on a number of people today, and it's really uh, David Hume that brought a big, huge question mark to this principle of causation. Uh, and it kind of even tripped up Immanuel Kant as well. And a lot of people today have taken a look at this principle of causation and really misunderstand this principle of causation. So we've got to state what it is and what it is not. The principle of causation uh, basically states that every, and this is very important, every contingent thing needs a cause. And the key word there is contingent. Contingent means something that is limited something that could cease to be, something that is finite and changing. Everything that is contingent needs a cause. Now, note what it does not state, because this is the popular misstatement of the term. In fact, I have seen modern atheists writing in books that have sold millions of copies, I am sure, certain, at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of copies, basically in print misstate this principle as stating everything needs a cause. And of course, as you commented at the beginning, if everything needs a cause, then all of a sudden God needs a cause. And therefore the principle of causality is invalid. But if you uh, can recall what I first stated, I never stated, and good philosophers never state that the principle says everything needs a cause. It only states that contingent things need a cause. And if contingent things need a cause, and God isn't a contingent thing. Remember, God's eternal. God's necessary. There's nothing contingent about that. And of course, uh, God is uncaused. God doesn't need a cause. I mean, he's not even self-caused. Of course, philosophy would rightly tell us that that's impossible. You can't have a self-caused being. It would have to exist before it exists. That's impossible. But you can't have an uncaused being. You can have a, a being that has always existed from eternity to eternity, the Bible tells us, uh, God exists. From everlasting to everlasting, God exists. God never came into existence, therefore he doesn't need a cause. He's always existed. And of course, you can have an uncaused being, and of course, an uncaused being is pure existence. So that's really important to get that principle of causality uh, correct. Yes, whatever has a beginning must have a cause, but God does not have a beginning. He's eternal, therefore he does not require a cause. That's what you're saying, yes. right? 
Yes, Fantastic. you're exactly right. And you know, there, there's actually something else about the principle of causality that's actually really crucial because um, I've heard a lot of presentations on the argument for the existence of God before. And I'll tell you, I would say that most of them put this notion of causality into the category of something uh, being a cause of something else. Like my parents were a cause of me coming into existence. And you could take each of my parents and keep going back to their parents which would be my grandparents, or a cause of them coming into existence. Or you could actually take the natural world, for example, and say, okay, you've got a tree uh, that drops a seed into the ground, and it grows another tree, and it drops a seed into the ground and grows another tree. Obviously, you have to go back to a first tree. View the causation that we're talking about in those terms. But I'd like to submit, I'd like to suggest that if, if we could go back to people before Immanuel Kant and before David Hume and look at people like maybe Thomas Aquinas and the way that they are using arguments for the existence of God, there's a really different notion of causation there. They're, they're dealing with what I will call simultaneous causation. That is, because something is finite, because I'm a finite being, I could cease to be. I can't be the cause of myself. So I need a cause of my existence simultaneously with my existence. You might picture this as uh, someone, this might be interesting to your reader, some that would picture of a wheel that would like roll down the street. And in order to keep the wheel going, you have to run alongside the wheel uh, and keep pushing it with your hand or with a stick to keep it rolling. And of course, if you stop pushing the wheel, then the wheel falls over and it stops as well. That's the, the kind of causation that's going on with respect to simultaneous causation. And so God needs to keep me continuing to be in existence, or I don't exist. If it isn't for God a necessary being, keeping me in existence while I exist. Another one that I used uh, in the article is an egg, for example, that would cook in a boiling or a pot of boiling water. And I would say, what is the cause of the egg cooking? And of course, I don't mean what is the cause of the of of the egg coming to be. I, I want which would be a you know a, a chicken. I, I'm talking about the cause of the egg cooking right now in the in the water. And you have to say, well, that's that's a a simultaneous cause. And you see, there's this this heater that is heating this pot that has water, and the water is boiling, and it's now cooking the egg, and it's making it hard. That's the type of causation that really is at play in really good cosmological type arguments with regards to this principle of causation. And I'll tell you, that's a much, that's a much more stronger and powerful argument, I think, when you recognize that type of principle of causation uh, rather than what paternal causation or a cause of something coming to be, but then not having anything to do. My parents don't have anything to do with my causation right now, but they did play a role, obviously, in me coming to be in the past. But I need something that is necessary and eternal and infinite for me to exist right now since I'm a contingent being. I'm a maybe, not a must. That was excellent. You've been listening to Doug Potter. He's with Southern Evangelical Seminary, a fine seminary training young men and women in the defense of the Christian faith. So, Doug, tell us a little bit about Southern Evangelical. 
Sure, I'll be glad to. Uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary has been in existence for quite some time. We actually started in 1992, and one of our, our co-founder, and your listeners may know of him, he's, he's a, a very prolific author, Dr. Norman Geiser, founded the seminary. And there's two distinctives of Southern Evangelical Seminary, and that is Christian apologetics, the very thing that you and I have been talking about today, and evangelism. Of course, we've been talking a little bit about that as well. Those are really the two pillars of Southern Evangelical Seminary. So if people are interested uh, in a seminary degree, or not even a degree, maybe even just taking classes or just informal training in evangelism and apologetics, I'll tell you there's no better school, in my opinion, with respect to doing those two things than Southern Evangelical Seminary. And people can reach us directly through our website around the world at ses. Edu. That's S-E-S, which stands for Southern Evangelical Seminary, S-E-S dot E-D-U. Uh, our website has a lot of information, and it doesn't matter whether you're in ninth grade or you're 90 years old, uh, we've got a program of study for you. We have programs that are just lay-level certificates and self-study programs where you work at your own pace and have a mentor over you, all the way up to Bachelor of Arts degrees, Master of Arts degrees in philosophy and apologetics, and Doctor of Ministry degrees as well as a PhD that is certainly in and related to philosophy and apologetics, the very things that we've been talking about today. So if people are interested in anything, whether it's formal or informal, uh, whether uh, whatever kind of training it is in evangelism and apologetics, we've got them. So please check out our website at ses.edu and contact us via that website, uh, or you can also contact us at 1-800-77-TRUTH. That's 1-800-77-TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and you'll be able to talk to one of our admissions director. And you may even get me, because sometimes I help out there, and I'll be glad to talk to any of your listeners about furthering their studies and education at Southern Evangelical Seminary. Yes, a fantastic seminary. Doug's an alumni. I am an alumni. Some great graduates there, but also a great lineup of professors. Dr. Norman Geisler, Dr. Richard Howe, Dr. Thomas Howe, Gary Habermas, Ron Rhodes, just the great lineup of some of the top Christian scholars and defenders of the Christian faith there. Well, Doug, thanks for being on the show, and we look forward to hearing from you again. Thanks so much, Pat. It was great to be on your show. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoy Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You will also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.